Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Jordana Levine, and you're listening to the Inspired Table Podcast. Each week, you'll be led down an inspired path of curiosity as I chat to some of my favorite soul-centered folk about the things that inspire me daily in the hope that some of that juicy inspiration will rub off on you. So pour yourself your favorite cuppa and take a seat at my table. I promise you'll leave happier, healthier, and bursting with inspiration. to the Inspire Table podcast. I'm your host Jordana Levine and I am so excited to share today's episode with you because a bunch of you have been asking me to do an episode similar to this for some time now. Ever since I announced I was given a book publishing deal to write my first book in August this year, I have been inundated with questions about how I got it, who I contacted, what I submitted, was it easy, was it tricky, can anyone write a book, and so on. So many questions. So in today's episode, I have a wonderful conversation with my publisher, Kelly Doust, from Australian publishing house Murdoch Books, about everything you need to know about the publishing industry and getting a book published. The most extraordinary thing about Kelly is that she's not only a publisher, but she's also the author of seven books, both nonfiction and fiction, and has spent a large part of her career in book publicity. So not only does Kelly know the industry well, but she knows all facets of it and perspectives on it. So if you've ever dreamt of being a published author, or perhaps you're right in the thick of it now, you're going to love this episode with the beautiful Kelly Doust. And make sure you stay tuned until the end of the episode where I give you some information on submitting a manuscript via the Friday pitch. It's so funny, ever since... um, Ever since I've been writing this book, I, every conversation I've had with anyone on this podcast has always led back to writing. Um, it's a process that I'm really interested in, but I know that a lot of my listeners are interested in it as well. And I have a lot of people, you know, contacting me and asking me, you know, how I approach a publisher or how people get manuscripts in. And I thought it might be nice just to sit down with you and talk about the industry a little bit and what it looks like in Australia and um, the process of what it takes to become an author and then have a look at it from the author's perspective as well. How does that sound to you? Yeah, that sounds great. Absolutely. Do you want me to just jump in and explain what the industry is like? (laughs) Let's do it. No, let's start with what is like, what is a publisher? That's your role. That's your title. What does that entail? So I'm both a publisher as my role, but I work for a book publisher. Um, And the purpose of a publisher is 
effectively sort of running a project of a book from conception through to publication and it goes through many different stages along the way and I look after that process. So I might uh, receive a manuscript from somebody who has already written something and they're looking to get it published or I might actually go and seek a manuscript from someone who I think maybe is prominent in a certain space or has something to share and then I put it forward through a process uh, that we call acquisitions. So we have a meeting with our uh, MD, our sales team, and that's a sales team um, represented by people that deal with all different areas of the market, both nationally and locally. Um, we have a sales team overseas as well. They all have a really important voice in deciding whether a book is one that we would take on. Uh, also, our marketing and publicity people who also have a lot to contribute in terms of the opportunities that they think the book might have once it's published. And we all sit around. It's a roundtable discussion where we talk about the author, we talk about the manuscript, we talk about the quality of the writing and where it fits in our list and maybe where it will fit in the market not just now, but when we actually publish in a year or two years' time. And then I, once we have taken a book on for publication, so just say everybody around the table is thrilled with the idea, um, I'll make an offer to the author. It will either be for the manuscript that's fully written or perhaps um, I will take it with the promise of that book being written, similar to the way I did with yours. So we offer an advance payment, which is um, calculated against the royalties and, and what we think the book is likely to earn over its life. Um, we offer that and then you or, or the author will go off and write the book. And once it gets into, once it's delivered to us several months later or, or, or even a year down the track, then we put it into the process of editorial and then um, market positioning with the marketing team and the sales team and then it ends up on bookshelves. <laughs> it's such a process isn't it you walk into a bookshelf uh, into a bookstore and you you pull a book off the shelf and you have no idea what's happened to it before it actually arrives there it's there's crazy. such oh there's such a huge amount of people involved so many different teams of people I sort of shepherd that process I guess um, and ultimately I'm responsible for whether it does well or not. Um, we all we all decide on whether to take on a book as a team, but yeah, the publisher really sort of holds the responsibility for that. And so, um, you know, when it goes out into the world, so many there's so many factors that um, contribute to a book's success or not, and none of us can ever really pick whether a book is going to fly or whether it will um, just sort of meet. Uh, a smaller audience and um, it's all it's it's all really exciting because it's there's so many variables and you never really know which way it's going to turn out yeah so I mean my next question to you would be was going to be you know how, how do you know how do you know when a book is going to do well how do you know um, that a book is something that you as a publisher want to take on like what are the what are the key factors that you're looking for when you pick up a book proposal or a written manuscript well 
instinct does play a really huge part, but I would say that's a calculated instinct. So we spend a lot of time looking at what's currently in the media. We look at research for what we think current trends and upcoming trends will be. We, you know, there there is a lot of instinct that comes into it. You you can tell when something is well written. You can you can pick up on a spark, but sometimes it, it might not even be the writing that that grabs you. It's the idea or the theme behind it. Uh, so yeah, I would say it's sort of a calculated instinct based on research, based on knowledge, and based on the background that we already have in the industry. And I mean. Your own personal preference must come into it at some point, though, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think any publisher, um, any individual publisher that's working for a publishing house has their own sort of flavour, their own list, and it's something that they um, they shape and develop, not just from their own interests, but things that appeal to them. I mean, for example, I, I'm publishing... Um, books for a whole different range of potential readers of all different age groups and all different demographics. But um, yeah, I I definitely have things that appeal to me. I mean, I'm particularly focusing on uh, personal development, health and wellness, sports, fitness, um, healthy cooking. These are things that I am interested in that makes sense for a publisher who's interested in those topics to publish within that space in the australian publishing industry are you guys looking um globally at what's trending or what's been working overseas to what perhaps might pick up here that hasn't tapped into the market yet or are you just um looking at the trends that we've already sort of had going and see what might be emerging from that point we, we definitely look at what's going on globally, but some things that are trending overseas won't necessarily trend here. Um, for example, you know, we go to Frankfurt and London book fairs every year. I Personally, I haven't um, – I've been to London book fair once, but I haven't been recently to any of the fairs. But our publishing director goes over to those fairs and she can really see – um, through talking with all the different publishers from other countries and through the meetings they have about potentially buying in overseas titles for our Australian market, what is trending over there. Mm. And some things we think will really work. Uh, some things vindicate some of the topics that we're already interested in and exploring or perhaps have writers already writing towards. Um, and some we just think, uh, yeah, that's not going to hit the mark here. But yeah, we're definitely looking on a global basis because, and you have to now too, because readers are looking globally to what's going on. Yeah, well, I guess you have access to so much more these days than you did before with all of the digital books um, that you can download pretty much instantly now without having to wait for them to actually be published in Australia in order for us to read them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do you mean self-published books or do you mean just no, e-books just mean in general? Like, yeah, just e-books in general. I mean, because if, if a publisher, I mean, we didn't always get all of the titles in Australia, did we, if they were being published overseas, but now you can have access to them right away before they get picked up or sent over here. Is that right? Or have I got that wrong? 
No, that's true. I mean, it it depends on. We still in Australia have um, territorial copyright laws, which mean uh, publishers, say in Australia, can buy a book from an overseas publisher and be the sole provider of that book in this territory. Mm. If that makes sense. Yes. Um, but there, there's definitely things that you can access. But I know, for example, that certain titles that we're publishing, we haven't acquired an overseas publisher for yet so so they're perhaps not available in another market but that's why we go to London and Frankfurt Book Fairs yeah. to try and sell the rights to publish our books overseas and some of those um the the company I work for in particular for Murdoch Books I mean they they have um, a long history of having their books published in different territories so we you know we're selling books to the Czech Republic or or to the US or um, all the time and those are books that wouldn't be available in those territories until they had the rights to sell them there yeah so what even you, even in ebook form yeah 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 so what do you think what do you think is trending at the moment in Australia let's say in the non-fiction realm I think body image is a, a really big trend at the moment. I think lots of people are really interested in our changing attitudes to body image and also what constitutes a healthy body. Mm. Um, the you know post this big wellness trend that we've had, which has been so important and has been amazing to make a lot of people aware of um, how to eat better and how to look after themselves. But I think we're we're trending towards a sort of kinder approach to to the self, where it's maybe moved on from some of the more extreme um, wellness trends to becoming a little bit more gentle. Um, that said, you know, veganism was once considered an extreme diet, but that is very much on trend, and that just continues to grow. Really? We continue to see lots of books on veganism. Um, I mean, I'm every week I'm pitched books on <laughs> vegan, niche vegan wow. topics like a vegan pregnancy or, or um, vegan style. I mean, veganism is is a really growing trend. And I mean, that uh, Murdoch's culture comes from really being a, a cookbook publisher. Yeah. And so we see in terms of with cooking, this sustainability is a big trend. And that means, you know, um, even even with meat and meat eating, it's about eating higher quality and less of it because it contributes so much to um, pollution like methane, gas from beef uh, causes a huge amount of environmental degradation. And so veganism is a growing trend, but also mindful, sustainable eating in general. Yeah. Let's talk about cookbooks for a minute. My background actually is food publishing and there was a boom in the cookbook market. I think it must have been like, you know, 2008 maybe, 2009, where like all of the celebrities had cookbooks, even if they weren't chefs. And I kind of thought it was going to die down. I thought, how many cookbooks can people have on their shelves? They're going to stop buying them at some point. But they haven't, have they? Like cookbooks are still hot in bookstores. Like everybody wants a cookbook. Yeah, cookbooks are doing well. But um, I mean, one of the reasons that we are a lifestyle publisher publishing in a broad range of areas is because um, 
you know, you you could have at one point just focused on that cookbook market and it was really super, super successful and Australia was really leading the way in terms of its cuisine and selling its books everywhere overseas. But yeah, I think I think there is a bit of a saturation okay. at the moment. And yeah. so uh, while there's still lots of cookbooks coming out and cookbooks available in stores and especially coming up to Christmas, you know, all the publishers put out their big cookbooks. Um, I think, you know, you have to have a broader range of books on your list to take in different different readers as well now. Yeah. No, that's good that's good to know. Because I <laughs> at one point it felt like all of the nonfiction books were it was only cookbooks. And I just thought they, people are going to stop running out of ideas you know like there's only so many recipes you can write um so it's nice to see a few different options out on the shelves now so you said body image um was on trend at the moment is there anything else that's kind of breaking through in the market yeah look i think um one of the things that we've really seen is that um spirituality and the so-called sort of new age titles uh, are really more like now age. And, mm. and that's, you know, particularly with your book on manifestation, that is um, just one part of that market. But, you know, I'm publishing books on anything from crystals through to, um, oh, I'm looking at lots of different topics that are sort of making up that market. I'm, I've, publishing a book on meditation mindfulness has been such a huge topic um mindfulness for parents and 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 stressed out people at work that's been a huge trend but just continues to stick around uh i think i think also sort of meaningful topics i mean i've been looking at some amazing charity books that are that are just looking at community and and the ways that people can give back because um, I think that that is something that people are also really interested in and Mm. and, and are becoming woke to (laughs) in a lot of ways. And I think, I think also this stuff, it's, it's becoming, it's becoming a lot more um, mainstream so that people don't need to go to the specialty new age bookstore and kind of hide in the corner to read the crystal books like it's it's on trend in the mainstream market that's right and look religion um has become more marginal in some ways but spirituality is on the rise so buddhism and yoga and um meditation and all these sort of related topics are you know very much on trend as well It's so good. It's so exciting because for someone who's kind of dabbled in this area for a really long time, you know, like I felt and a lot of my friends have felt that we've had to kind of um, hide behind it a little bit, but it's really nice to be able to offer it in a really palatable, digestible, relatable way to people and not be um, pigeonholed or niched as, you know, woo-woo or spiritual or hippie or, you know, to new age it's nice it's nice to be able to share it i know it's like mind body spirit 2.0 yeah <laughs> well yeah and it's about time it's it's so funny we were talking the other day kelly i'm sure i can talk about this tell me if i can't but we were talking about the color purple and we were like you know for so long 
the color purple has been not the Oprah movie, the actual color purple. No, I know. (laughs) (laughs) The color purple has been this real like mind, body, spirit, hippie color. And it has this like connotation for people in their minds when they see it. And it was only as being when, really hippie. Yeah. And it was only when you said it to me, I was like, yeah, like, ew, you're right. It really does. And it's trying to like, for me, I really want to break that mold again because we are sort of so conditioned to little things like that. Like even just colors meaning a certain thing around spirituality and what it means to be a spiritual person. Like, you know, long flowy skirts and long flowy hair and crushed velvet and dark lights and, you know, mirror balls. Yeah, absolutely. And as, as I was saying to you when we had that conversation, um, you know, we look at all these different trends and uh, one of the trends, just one of the many trends that we sort of keep an eye on is the new Pantone colour every yeah. year. And then the new Pantone colour coming up is ultraviolet so that is a sort of bright purple color and it's it's meant to reflect global trends and what that's picking up in picking up on is new spirituality magic mysticism uh it's all very much on trend particularly with millennials who perhaps don't associate with any one religion but are sort of looking for answers spiritually in some way or another so interesting isn't it I love that um so the other thing that you do besides being a publisher is you're an author and you're a published author of how many books uh seven. Oh, seven. my <laughs> okay so that that's split into non-fiction and fiction right so how many how many non-fiction have you written I've written five non-fiction books I wrote a series of craft books um the first one was The Crafty Minx. Um, I wrote a book on vintage and uh, I wrote a sort of frothy fashion book called A Life in Frocks, which was a, a memoir of sorts. And then more recently I've been working on novels. So I, I've just had a recent book out called Dressing the Dear Loves, which came out in September, and uh, Precious Things, which came out a couple of years ago. And so, I mean, having just sat down and written a nonfiction book, I found it um, equal parts like easy and um, it kind of flowed really well because it was stuff that I knew um, and then equally hard because it was stuff that I knew so well. (laughs) So how do you find, how do you find the process differs for you writing a nonfiction to writing a fiction book? Does it feel like a completely separate exercise or you know like are there similarities to the two well the similarity is that you you do have to be creative when you're putting words together and um I mean you know this more than anyone you're such a clever writer yourself um that you can't just write what you think you have to put it in in a format that's going to engage people and keep them reading um so writing non-fiction it has its own challenges. So sometimes maybe the fact that you know it's you're putting the truth down on paper or the truth that people understand from nonfiction that you're that you're telling them something that is true and that they can take note of, that you 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 feel a responsibility there to um, perhaps 
reflect that honestly and reflect um, maybe if you're talking about people in your life to reflect that really honestly. Um, whereas when you're writing fiction, you can disguise things and you can make up whatever fanciful, fanciful story you you want, I guess. But there's a lot of there's a lot more rules when it comes to fiction and mm. and things that you need to conform to in some ways. Um, otherwise, it just wouldn't make sense. In a way, that saying truth is stranger than fiction. It's 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 very true. I mean, if you try and put something into fiction that feels really strange, if you haven't laid the groundwork for it, then it just will fall flat. It won't work and people won't believe it and that takes them out of the story. Um, so in a way it's easier to just tell a story in nonfiction, but in fiction you have to, you, you know, you have to do all that groundwork to make sure that it does work and that it's compelling and it keeps readers turning the page until the end. Oh, Absolutely. I mean, I don't even know. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Like, I don't even know how you guys write fiction books because it's so it's so layered. And even the story that's not told, you as the author probably need to know all of that background story, right? Well, you do. I mean, in some ways you can write your way into it by thinking about the background of those people. I mean, I start to think about the characters that I write in nonfiction as real people and you do feel this affinity for them and a, and a, a, a growing love for them as the book goes on and, and for their flaws and foibles um, and the thing that, you know, the obstacles that you put in their, in their way and the things that you put them through. So, yeah, you do need to have that sense that, that they are real in some ways, but it is, yeah, it's just such a different thing. It's like learning to write again. I mean, I, I started writing fiction because I felt, because I'd been writing about fashion and craft and vintage clothing, I sort of felt like I'd, I'd said everything that I wanted to say about those things. And I'm really passionate about that stuff. I'm really passionate about fashion. I, you know, I love it. I've been reading fashion magazines since I was really young. And I just felt like I'd said everything I needed to say in that area for a while. But then once I started writing fiction, I, it was like learning to write again, but I could pour all that love into it in a different way by sort of weaving it into a storyline. And it was just a different way to come at storytelling that I really enjoyed. Can you tell us the synopsis of your latest fiction book? Yes. So Dressing the Dear Loves is about a young woman. She's uh, she's 30. She's had a really successful career as a fashion designer in New York and it's been then she's just had this spectacular public failure and the book starts with her coming back to England where she's from to um see her family and in effect with her tail between her legs to sort of seek refuge in her family home which is this crumbling manner that you know her parents are are effectively broke they haven't been able to keep it up for many many years and she comes home to lick her wounds and then finds out her parents are selling so it's a bit of a shock because she's hoping to recover there and then she she's left England uh, desperate to, you know, get away and, and forge a life for herself on her own terms. But then only in coming home does she start to understand more about who she is, who her family is, um, and the secrets 
of her family over the generations. And it's all sort of told around fashion and uh, this cache of amazing clothing in the attic that she comes upon and has almost forgotten exists. And, and a lot of the stories are told through those pieces that have been handed down through generations and are sort of hidden up there in the attic. So how did, how did this start for you? Like, do you, do you find, um, does, like, does it start with an idea or does it start with a character or a concept or like how, how did it all kind of come together for you when writing a book like this? I guess um, the, the seed of this idea came from, I was watching, um, I used to live in England and my husband's English and I, my father was English and I absolutely love um, National Trust houses like every time I'm over there I just love going to visit them because I find them absolutely fascinating and I was watching a BBC series on um, these penniless aristocrats who were living in these hundred room mansions that were crumbling down around their ears and they couldn't afford to fix the roof because it would cost millions and millions of pounds and you know I just thought that was absolutely wonderful these concept this concept of these formerly very grand families who are living in this abject poverty but still sort of holding on to some vestiges of their history Mm. in some ways. And so that was where the idea came for the home. But then Sylvie, the protagonist, came to me because I thought, well, how would a really young person who had inherited that legacy maybe turn those, those fortunes around? What would they do? And through researching the book, I read about all these amazing modern aristocrats who had done things like, you know, set up a festival of ideas on the grounds of their um, manor home, or they had arranged for a um, like a, a racing carnival, or all sorts of different things in in order to bring people in, bring funds in, so that they could keep the property up and I just I sort of wanted to explore that with Sylvie and 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 her being confronted by that and what she would do I thought she'd be really resourceful in that way yeah beautiful I have to read it I can't believe I actually haven't read it yet it sounds um it sounds this is probably what every author thinks when they sit down to write their fiction book but it sounds like it would make a brilliant movie well, I didn't think about that. I mean, I, some people have said that, which is lovely. And, of course, it would be lovely if it sold <laughs> the film rights. Um, having having worked on a number of fiction titles before that have sold the film rights, I do know that it it can you can sell the film rights for, for a book and then be waiting indefinitely for a film to be made. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's been... It's it's lovely watching your favourite books being turned into films. I I was watching the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society recently. <laughs> Such a title. <laughs> Love that. Oh, I absolutely adored that book. It is heartbreaking and beautiful and one of the best books ever. Um, and it's just lovely, you know, that I worked on um, – uh, I, I was working at the publishing house that published that many, many years ago. And, yeah, it only just recently came out as a film, but it's it's lovely to see it happen. What are some of your favourite books? Oh, there's so many to choose from. Um, well, more recently I read and absolutely adored Lily Allen's book, My Thoughts Exactly. I I love rock and pop biographies and autobiographies because I think, 
that pop stars and rock stars just live a life like no other. Oh, don't know. Um, oh, I just absolutely loved it. When you know, when I'm looking for inspiration to write fiction, I read a lot of nonfiction, and I love, I I love the nonfiction biographies of of um, people in fashion or or people that are you know working in the entertainment industry. I just find it endlessly sort of fascinating. That was. A wonderful book. Um, in terms of fiction, I love Siri Hustvet's What I Loved, which is such a beautiful book about art and family and death. Uh, I adore Peter Hoag's Miss Miller's Feeling for Snow. He's a Danish writer, just lovely spare prose, beautiful writing. Barbara Trapedo, she writes really wonderful, funny, domestic novels that are about families and and marriage and they're fun and sexy and clever um but yeah I read really widely and I I love all sorts of things I haven't heard of any of those books so that that's really exciting for me I kind I'll of, have to lend them to you yeah I kind <laughs> of stick to the same authors all the time and I I I, I need to really start expanding what I'm reading. Oh, who do you read? Well, you know, like I read a lot of like, um, to be honest with you, I eat, a, I read a lot of easy reads. Like I love Leanne Moriarty books. I think we were talking about them the last oh, so time do I, I saw you. I mean, she's just, she's just so easy to read, but she just describes her characters so well and you just get so lost in the stories. Um, I love Jeffrey Eugenides, who wrote Middlesex. That's that mm-hmm. is probably my favorite book. Um, and I also my favorite book of all time is Jitterbug Perfume. Oh, Tom yeah, Robbins. I love, just that, love book. that book so much. So I've read I. it so many times, but I don't love a lot of his other books. So. Yeah. Oh, I like Half Asleep in Frog Pajamas as oh, well. I, I haven't read Half Asleep in Pro- Frog Pajamas, but I do have it, so I will read that. Yeah, oh, it's some um, look. I love a lot of, I I, I read literary so called literary fiction through to commercial fiction. I love um, Marion Keys, for example. Yes, uh, she's an amazing writer. I mean, I've read everything she's ever written and just adore her. That she, last she just, book of hers was fantastic. The break, the break, oh, was I really good. It. Oh, and Jojo Moyes, she's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Um absolutely love her writing as well but yeah I think you know it's sort of like um eating really in some ways like you just want palate cleansers and you want different dishes to satisfy different needs that's what's reading reading is like I think yeah you're right and also yeah just different times in your life and what's going on and where your headspace is and all of that sort of stuff it all makes a difference to reading I like I love a good holiday read and mm. on a holiday I really want to just read that really easy you know, Marion Keys type of stuff. Um, and then I like, you know, when I'm um, when I'm exhausted from work, you know, just that stuff that you can get lost in as you fall asleep at night. And then when I have a little bit more time, I like to do that sort of like little bit, um, you know, more critical thinking type reading. Yeah, and I, I mean, I often find I read different things at different times of the day. I've always got about, I've, I've usually got about three books I'm reading for pleasure on the go but then I've also obviously got a lot of things that I'm reading for work Mm. so I'll be reading something that's kind of calm and inspirational 
with my breakfast and then during the day I might be reading sort of heavy stuff that I need to like really think about and then at night, you know, I don't want anything to uh, something that's going to keep me awake. <laughs> so, yeah, I, 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 like I dip in and out of different books at different times of the day as well. Do you read, do you ever read crime stuff? Yeah, I haven't been reading. Oh, I just read Trent Dalton's amazing new book, Boy Swallows Universe. And <gasps> I'm that's reading got it a bit at of, the moment. Oh, so beautiful, isn't it's it? So I love beautiful. that book. Yes. Don't yeah, tell me it's anything. absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> no, but I mean, that has a crime element to it. It's not a traditional crime novel as such. But yeah, I love crime. I used to uh, adore Manette Walters' crime. I mean, I still do. It's it's wonderful. Um, early Patricia Cornwall before mm. it got to be, you know, one every year, which just became, I, I think sometimes when a public, when a, an author is just sort of churning out books every year. Like it, it the quality does kind of uh, suffer in some ways. But yeah. Um, yeah, I loved her early stuff. I really did. And oh, I read Jeffrey Deaver and Michael Connolly. And yeah, I love I love crime too. Yeah, I love crime. How long did it take you to write your last fiction book? On and off, it took two and a half years about two and a half years yeah and I was sort of working during that time as well um but it's actually good to have that length of time because it's always good to put a manuscript down for a bit have a bit of distance from it Mm. and then go back to it um and I got that time on this book which was lovely yeah do you find that you have to like what's your what's your writing process? Let's say when you're working full time. I was I was um, lucky enough to be able to take some time off to write my manuscript. I don't know how I would have done it if I was working full time. But when you are, how do you how do you set time aside to sit down and write? Well, I work four days, um, so Mondays is my writing day, but. I also grab time when I can away from my family on on Sundays or early mornings before they're awake. Sometimes if I get home and something's in my head, I'll sit down for an hour or two before dinner. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it is challenging (laughs) slotting it in around working almost full time. Uh, And certainly when I was in the midst of writing um, my last novel, I was working on it full time for a while. But... Yeah, I mean, you you make time for it, and I think you can always make time for it if 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 it's a priority. Yeah, and if it's a passion as well. I think I've you know, I was thinking when I was writing this book, like I used to always leave everything to the last minute when I was at uni or or school even, you know, because I just wasn't interested in it at all. But when it's something that you really um, are passionate about and excited about you do just grab the minutes when you have them because you want to, yeah. you want to, you know, like yeah, you, you want to get into it. Yes. And sometimes like you can do your best writing in those snatched minutes. I think, um, yeah. look, having, having written full time and then having written while I'm working, I, I do know that sometimes when you've got all that time, you've got a full day ahead to write that, that those can be the days where it just doesn't flow and it's not happening and, it, and it's like aching blood out of a stone just to write 200 words. But then, you know, sometimes when you're just seized by an idea, you can sit down and write 
couple of thousand words, no problem. I have found um, as an author working with you as a publisher that you having, well, you being an author has been of great advantage to me <laughs> because oh, I feel nice. like, well, I feel like you really understand what it's like um, where a lot of, I mean, I haven't worked with another publisher, so I can't really compare, but I imagine that there is a, um, a synergy that you must feel with your authors because you can understand what the process is like for them. Have you found that? I definitely do. I think I've got that real understanding and compassion of what it's for what it's like to actually pull together a manuscript. I mean, I'm quite, it is unusual for a publisher to be a writer as well. And it's also unusual. I came from a publicity background. I used to be a book publicist and publicity manager for years. And, um, before I went off to write full time. And so my focus is very much on um, the end of the process, sort of how a book goes to market and and how to position it in terms of the media and, and, and to find its readership. Um, so it's quite common for publishers to come up through the editorial route. So they work very closely with the manuscript and know exactly what to put in and what to take out of a book to make it really tight. Um, that That's not my skill, uh, but I can see as a writer um, how to pull together a manuscript. So I just, I come at it from a slightly different direction. And I think what's wonderful is that I work with a team of really strong editors and publicists and people working in all different sort of areas of the business and we all bring our own skills to it and yeah I do bring an unusual skill set to it but um, I think you know for the authors that I'm dealing with they're still getting the other skill set from my colleagues and um, but they're also getting the understanding from me of what it's like to go through the entire process. Mm. So tell me I, I know that after this podcast there's going to be a lot of people asking the question of how they get things published. So if somebody's writing a manuscript or putting together a proposal, what do you think the best um, avenue is for them to take as a budding author? Well, I think it's it's really important to pull together a, a concise, um, well-written proposal. So that would be um, you'd have a working title, and subtitle if you if you want one you'd have a blurb so what you think the book is about you'd have the market who you think is your readership a lot of people will say oh I want to write for everyone but (laughs) quite honestly um, every book is targeted at a certain audience so maybe that's a specific age group or it could be broad but you've got to be kind of specific in there because um chances are it won't be read by everyone. It will have a specific readership in mind. Um, Also, you should be conscious of what other books are available in the market so that you might see in bookstores that are similar or comparative because that will help us position the book and know, um, just know even more who that readership is because it's so important to know who the readership is. If it's it's a very niche readership, um, then it's going to limit our chances of selling it so 
obviously a broader readership is great and but a concise readership of who you think it is. Um, and then also it's really good to have a good amount of material to present to a publisher. So especially if you haven't been published before at all, it's really important to have um, a list of all the chapters and what that include, a good introduction and a few chapters, I think, at least at least two chapters to lead you into what the book's about and how it will read. And, uh, I mean, I work for Murdoch and we have um, some people getting in touch with us directly. Uh, a lot of the other publishers won't take direct submissions. They'll only take it through agents. If it's in nonfiction, it's not as important to have an agent. It's always good to have someone to represent you if you're nervous about negotiating for yourself. But, you know, you don't necessarily need an agent to represent you if you're writing nonfiction. It's quite important for fiction, I think, um, to have someone who's that sort of face of, of your work in some ways. But you can try submitting it directly to a publisher. You might, you might have a look at some of your other favourite books or, or books that are written for a similar audience and see who the publisher is. I mean, I've always looked in the acknowledgements page and it usually mm. thanks the publisher. Um, and you can, you can try approaching that person directly. Sometimes they'll say to you, um, no, I don't take direct submissions. Um, but that's one way to go about it. Another way is finding an agent and you can find agents if you look online, you can you can look for for agents dealing in fiction or non-fiction. Um, I'm just trying to think of, of other ways. It can be it can seem quite daunting if you've no experience in it, but if you ask around, uh, you know, people can often put you in touch. I have a lot of people come through contacts. Yeah. Um, certainly now. I'm working with a number of authors and they'll put me in touch with author friends. I mean, that's how you and I were introduced mm. through another author, mutual author friend. So, yeah, that's another way in. And do you think, like, what do you think about, especially in the nonfiction world, I would say it's different to fiction, but I'd love to hear what your thoughts on it, um, about having some sort of profile to start with. Do you think that that's important or not necessarily? Look, it depends what you're writing about. It is, look, there's no getting away from it. It is quite important these days. We have such a diffuse, broad media and people are finding information from a really varied group of sources. So where once we have shrinking media channels, so where once, you know, as speaking as a former publicist, we'd go to the main um newspaper groups or the main television programs in order to reach an audience. Now we're finding that people are not necessarily coming to books the same way. So if if someone does have their own profile on social media, say through Instagram, or maybe they're doing lots of workshops and events, um, maybe they're blogging. I mean, a lot of people are not really blogging now. It's mainly through those social media platforms. But um, newsletter email lists and and sort of running a business that already has like a really engaged audience uh it's definitely in your favor yeah definitely um but sometimes you know you don't need to have a super high profile but a really engaged audience and have the strength of a great idea that 
like we were saying before, is on is on trend or, or something that we can see is going to be a thing. And so sometimes you see topics and you find someone who doesn't have the profile, but you can tell that they can speak to that topic really well and you know how you're going to promote that and position it at the end of the day. Yeah. And do you think that this doesn't apply so much to fiction writers? Do you think it's a little bit different because we don't really see their faces as much or... Do you think it's detached from the the person that is the author of fiction book? Yeah, look, some fiction writers are having amazing success with releasing self-published things online. I mean, that's how Fifty Shades of Grey came out. Um, James Patterson has just launched a book on Facebook um, and there's people that share things on Twitter and other social media platforms bit by bit. But generally you know, with, with fiction, I don't think it's as important to have a profile. If you just write a really great book Mm. and a fiction, a a novel is going to be different than nonfiction. So where I was saying before, if you, if you come up with a proposal and you come up with, um, an introduction and some chapters that, that would be enough sometimes in nonfiction to get you a book deal. But in fiction, largely especially if you haven't been published before you would need to write that whole novel a first draft of that novel Um, and then really it's the strength of that it's the strength of the creativity and the idea behind that that's going to get you a book published okay I have one more thing that I want to cover with you I know we've been chatting for a while um but the process that I'm up to at the moment with you guys as publishers is I've, I've given you my first draft which is complete, and now it's going through the editing process. So there's a certain level of editing that takes place with a book, but how much, like, if someone has, I don't even know if you can answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If somebody (laughs) has a great idea, but they're not necessarily a wonderful writer, how much can an editor change to make it a well-written piece to get this great idea across? And then how much of, of it as a publisher are you like, oh, that's a great idea, but you're not the person to execute it? The answer is an editor can do a great deal. And there's certainly books that you'll see in bookstores that are published and they're from people who have some sort of extraordinary experience, whether that's something that they've achieved or they've been through or um, perhaps they they have a really high profile, maybe they're, they're a famous sportsman or something, and they won't write their own book necessarily, but um, they'll have a ghostwriter or uh, an editor helping them shape their story, and that can be enough for those people. Um, we, we can do a lot. But generally, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's magic. But generally you like to take on something that kind of ticks all the boxes. Um, So a great story well told by the person who's telling the story. And that's certainly in nonfiction. Um, it, It would be very hard in fiction to well, very costly and to in fiction to sort of rewrite something for someone. Uh, but look, editors are amazing. I, I love the editorial process. Some I've worked with some authors in the past who don't like it. They don't like their words being changed. <laughs> and sometimes when you're working with an editor, they can 
you know, occasionally change the meaning of what you were saying, but you can always say no. I mean, it's really ultimately up to you. Your name's on the cover. Um, so it's up to you, uh, you know, how, how you want the process to go. But I personally love being edited because otherwise I'd be self-published. I mean, I just think publishing such an amazing industry because there's so many different experts working in different areas and we bring all this expertise to this finished product, this beautiful book. And I think you're missing out if you don't take on all that expertise. Um, it, it can be, there, there are people that self-publish their books, but generally I think every book is improved by having a, a group of professionals on board to help. And I don't mean Sorry, you can ask me. No, I no. Please keep continuing with that. I'll, I'll add at the end. Look, I don't mean just like when you when I write my fiction, for example. I, I have one very trusted person that I share my writing with, and a writing group that I will read pieces to and and take on board advice and suggestions from. But they're all writers, and they're all people that I I really trust. I think if you give 10 friends um, a copy of your manuscript, you'll get 10 different suggestions or answers and some people just won't get it and they might not be your audience. So maybe, especially when something's in that formative stage where it's really quite fragile in some ways, whether it'll become a real thing or not, it's it's sometimes better not to share it with those people. I do think it can, but if you've got a professional team on board, you know you can trust them and, it, and it's um. You know, I, I, I love that process of working with authors and giving them input and um, especially if they, you know, if they trust me and they'll take it on board and, and then further down the track it'll go to a, an editor who's even more um, uh, sort of focused on the minutiae of the manuscript than I am and they'll be able to provide a lot more help. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm really excited about it going through the editing process, I think, as the writer, you can get so consumed by your own stories and your own words that you kind of get a little bit lost in the process. And I'm really looking forward to someone cleaning it up, <laughs> you know. I don't think yours needs a lot of cleaning up. I've read it oh, and I think you. it's great. Thank you. Because what happens? <laughs> well, I mean, what happens when we get a book is that we, um, the publisher has to read it first before they can put it into editorial and say whether or not they think it's effectively good enough to be accepted um as a first draft and you know you know I read yours and I thought it was great and we had a few little chats and there was a little bit of tweaking but very very little um really and now it's in the editorial process and I look forward to seeing it being polished as well but I it it certainly won't there'll be no point at which we change your voice or the 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 overall themes or anything like that because it's it, you know you know your topic really well and you've expressed it really well and um I look forward to taking it out to other people so they can read it too oh thanks Kelly I'm I'm really excited to have Murdoch polish it up for me really and to help me express it to the world because it was one of those things you know that um I like I'd always wanted to be a writer and I always have been a writer, but I never, ever thought that I could actually be a published author. So to be almost there just seems like such an achievement, such a dream. It so, is. It's yeah. such an achievement. I mean, you should be 
incredibly proud of yourself. I mean, I'm conscious that through this whole discussion, I've sounded very, in some ways, kind of corporate when you're talking about the whole process and the, the publishing process. But of course, there's so much like lovely magic and intuition and creativity involved in it all too. It's just that, you know, none of us can really afford to be publishing things right now. There's so many books out there that are not like really focused as well um, commercially, like thinking about who the readership is. So it's funny being a publisher and an author as well, because I have that creative interest and that just sort of kind of slightly waffly artistic temperament where I love to kind of go off and just do things for the joy of it but then it's wonderful working in that area too where you really understand how you can put the pieces together and make it make it sell and make it a you know a finished product that feels polished and feels um like something worthy of being published it's it is but there is a real magic to the whole process as well such a wonder yeah, yeah, yes, I agree. Um, I, I know I said that was my last question, but I actually have two quick questions for you. Go for it. <laughs> the first one is um, a really, really quick one. Do you, do you use Kindles? Like, do you read books electronically ever? I read on screen all day because oh, I receive a lot of manuscripts mm. for work. So I, I really don't like Kindles. I Look, so many of my friends in the industry take Kindles away with them on holiday and read them beside the pool, that sort of thing. But I still love a finished book. So I just haven't done that yet. But then I'm a bit bonkers because I I will go literally on a sort of long holiday and be taking, you know, 10 novels in my bag, which is crazy, (laughs) which is completely bonkers. And I'll be buying things when I'm over there as well. But I just – I. I really fetishize books. I just love yeah. to hold them and Same. own them. Um, so that's not me, but that's not to say other people in the industry don't do that because they do. Lots of them do. Yeah. I, I'm the same. Like my friend Cass, who you know, she's obsessed with her Kindle. Like she's so obsessed with it and she's been trying to get me to get a Kindle for so long. And I just, it's like I don't absorb the words when I'm reading it from the screen I don't know why it just doesn't have the same magic to it that holding a physical book does and I guess there is actually there's actually scientific research that has said that that is the case that you don't absorb in the same way when you read on screen as you do from from a hard copy but I think look I think younger generations will be different I think that they'll probably consume the majority of their uh, majority of their content online yeah. Um, but maybe it's just being slightly older. Yeah. I was chatting to um, Amy Malloy the other day on the podcast and she, um, you know, she's, uh, we were talking, sorry, we were talking about the um, magazine industry. So the publishing industry in the UK and Australia and how, you know, it's really been a demise of magazines in the last few years with them all closing down and people are just reading stuff online now. Do you think that's happening to the book publishing industry? Like, I don't feel like it is as a consumer, but I just wondered what you thought about that. I don't think, look, I'm not sure about the future of magazines and I love magazines, so I'll be sad to see them go. But I think they'll go before books ever go. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we we know from research that 
ebooks haven't taken over the world, that people still do want published books and otherwise we you know we wouldn't be here but but that's not to say that we're not we have to be incredibly targeted because there's just so many more forms of entertainment now people yeah. i mean I, I something that i find really sad is if i ever stand on a train platform and watch the trains going by i'll count how many people actually have a book in their hand and it's usually like two or three people on the mm. entire train and when i think back 10 years ago yeah. or 20 years ago Everyone, everyone would have a newspaper or a magazine yeah. or a book in their hands, yeah. But now everybody has their phone. Oh, and so, so you see right. very few people with printed material. Now, they might be reading books on their phone, but I think a lot of people as well now with streaming and everything, they're watching they're watching TV, they're watching YouTube, they're, watching, you know, they're looking on social media platforms. So, you know, it's very diffuse. Um, I find that people they have to really make an effort to read now, whereas before it was easier because there were just fewer forms of transportable information in some ways. Yeah. Um, okay, that's good to know because <laughs> I was a little bit fearful of it, but I think I think that the major shift perhaps, and you tell me what you think here, is that the online aspect of books is that people are now buying them online more than going into physical bookstores there's lots of people buying online but bookstores are still yeah really good bookstores are just doing so well at it I mean I think in a way um it's sort of similar retail is tough across the board but I think in a way it's similar to you know what what a really good boutique or fashion store does they they're cultivating their audience. They're um, they're they're selling um, things that they know their specific audience will love and and kind of mm. take on board. And you know, there's bookstores, so many bookstores I can think of um, across the country that really specialise in certain ways, and they know their audience and they know their local readers so well. And they put on beautiful events and they just have a really curated list. And And I think that's the future of bookstores, similar to the future of retail. Um, I think that kind of curation is what people are looking for because we're, we're all aware of the excess in terms of um, just stuff that we have. So you, you want to feel like something special and curated and and it's not necessarily more is better it's quality over quantity yeah okay last question um we touched we touched on it slightly but i we've had a conversation about it before and i think it's quite interesting self-publishing so there's a few pros to publishing yourself but there's a lot of pros to being published by a publishing house can we talk about that just a little bit? Because I know that a lot of people are thinking, oh, you know, I have this great idea and, um, you know, a publishing house doesn't want to take me on board because, you know, maybe I don't have a big enough profile or whatever the reason is, I'll publish it myself and potentially make more money that way. But where do you think some of the blocks come from being self-published? Look, I think if you've tried and tried and tried and you haven't been able to get published traditionally, why not give self-publishing a go? But, you know, there might be a reason why 
a traditional publisher hasn't taken it on. Maybe they think that the audience is too niche. Maybe they think it's not well-written enough or, or not well-researched enough. But, look, I just think that the major two things that you miss out on are the input of an editor or a publisher who's going to shape uh, that manuscript a little bit better for you, um, but also distribution channels. Like mm. if you if you put your um, self-published ebook up online and you have a significant audience already you're probably going to sell it out and do really well and I know lots of authors that do but if you don't have that platform how are people going to hear about it how will anyone know about it and also I just I personally would never self-publish and it might sound like I'm completely biased because I work for publishers but just as an author I would never self-publish because I so appreciate that expertise and input um, and, you know, having worked in publishing for most of my, my adult life, I do understand how much goes into it behind the scenes and how much value you get. I mean, it's a significant investment for a publisher to take an author on. I mean, we, you know, I work on illustrated books, so books with lots of photography that have to be printed overseas because it just, you know, for economies of scale, it just would not make sense to publish them here in Australia. Um, to print them here in Australia. And then I work on mono titles like your book's going to be, so a black and white trade paperback that we can print in Australia. Um, and both require a significant investment, but it's particularly like those sort of full-colour coffee mm. table books, they're very, very costly pr- to produce. And, um, you know, we we make such a big investment in those books as a company, so... That's why there is, that's why in, a, in, a, in effect um, it feels like there's gatekeepers because it's not just a matter of like taking on a book and then making money out of it. Like it's, it represents a significant investment of yeah. time and, and money um, for all those people that are involved in the process. Yeah, thank you. That is that is a good understanding of it. Um, all right. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been so nice chatting and I feel like this is the kind of information that a lot of people have been wondering about and they've definitely been asking me about and I thought that it would be so much better coming from you. <laughs> so, Kelly, if people wanted to find out more about you as author Kelly Doust, where would they go? I have a website, it's kellydowse.com.au and if you want to know more about um, what I'm publishing, then you can go to the Murdoch Books website, which is murdochbooks.com.au. Yeah, there's some some really exciting titles coming out soon as well, isn't there? Are we allowed to talk about any of them? Oh, if if you like. Yeah, we've got... So we we published Alex Stewart's Low Tox Life. I know yeah. you had her on the podcast yeah. earlier this year. So her book um, came out earlier this year. But we have, um, yeah, we've got some really exciting books coming up. Um, I'm really excited about Kate Kendall's book Life in Flow, which she's um, a yogi and she also has a podcast, The Space Between. She's got a book coming out with me in March next year. Um, the Elise Knowles book I published, that's um, oh, yeah. out now this, this month. It's beautiful. Yeah, well, that just, that just came out. And um, I also published a really great fitness book called Eight Weeks to Wow, which came out in September. 
with Chief and Emily Brabon. They're the in-house trainers at Pacific Magazines. Oh. Um, so that was another really fun project to work on. So, yeah, but lots of great books coming up. I'm really excited to see the things coming out in the list of the coming year. Yeah, me too. I can't wait. All right, well, thank you again and um, have a beautiful rest of your day. Thanks, Rodana. I hope it was helpful. You too. Kelly and I spoke off air about the best way for you to submit a manuscript to Murdoch Books and Kelly said you just can't go past the Friday pitch which is run by Alan and Unwin who own Murdoch. Alan and Unwin know how difficult it can be for writers to get their work in front of publishers which is why they've created this innovative and pioneering submission system, the Friday pitch. The Friday pitch allows for writers of all genres to have their work considered by one of their in-house submission editors, which is pretty big guys because if you just blindly submit to a publishing house, there's no guarantee that anyone's even going to look at it. So going through the Friday pitch guarantees that somebody reads through it which is a great first step if they wish to pursue your project you'll hear back from them within a fortnight which is also pretty cool because sometimes it can take months Um, and my personal advice to you is not to give up Murdoch wasn't the first publisher to see my proposal and if I had taken the opinion of other publishing houses I wouldn't be in the very blessed position I find myself in today Also, I've said this on here before, but I 100% believe that I manifested my book deal and destiny played a big part in me landing the deal with Murdoch, all of which I explain in my new book in Bookstores May 2019. (laughs) That was definitely a pitch for you to read it, but it is true. And honestly, I just cannot wait for you guys to read this book. Remember, If you love this episode, screenshot it on your phone and post it to your Insta story so your friends can treat themselves to this conversation too. If you are on the iTunes app, make sure you subscribe. And if you feel like leaving me a rating or review, you know I love it. Um, In the meantime, if you want to see what I'm up to, come and check me out on Instagram at Jordana Levine. And until next time, I am that person, Jordana Levine, wishing you an inspirational week. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 